Uh, Daniel chapter 1. Uh, let's jump in. Before we do, we are kicking off this book today. I'm kind of tempted to maybe say a little too much now, so I'm going to try to wait. Um, some of the, the focus and emphasis and why we're doing this is we're looking at a book where what we primarily see is resilient faith in exile. We see, uh, I love how one pastor put it, he called this orthodoxy in exile. Like, how do we remain faithful to God, his word, to his commands, to how to live, even when you feel like you've been exiled, or even when you feel like you're the minority? You know, I don't know if you guys sense this or feel this, just culturally, there's like this tension, I think, right now, with the church, with the world, on how to live, on identity, on just everything, you name it. Um, there's these tensions in the political realm. There's these tensions in the spiritual realm. There's these tensions in the cultural realm. You know, maybe you feel like at times, like, did we lose? Like, are Christians losing? What is losing and winning? What does that even mean? You know, I think we have to acknowledge to some extent, um, we are really kind of like, a, it seems like the last couple of decades in a post-Christian uh, culture, meaning it doesn't seem that the morality and ethics of Christianity are, are, are winning, are infiltrating the kind of the populace, you would say. And you're like, well, what do we do? And sometimes there's reactions to that. You panic or we, we kind of pull away from culture. We don't engage. And here's the hope. In this book, we, we see kind of two different ideas. The first six chapters, we're going to be looking at Daniel and some of his friends. Uh, the last half, you see like a lot of apocalyptic literature. It's very interesting. A lot of imagery. Um, a lot of kind of language that's used in a way to kind of, kind of pull back the curtain and reveal what really matters. Um, as weird as Daniel gets kind of maybe towards the second half, I'm starting to appreciate it more and more of like, God's like, let me use this type of style of writing and language and images to show you, to pull back the curtain of the physical realm and spiritual realm and the kingdoms that will come and go, but God's kingdom that will always remain. And God uses language, I think, to kind of open up our mindset to what really matters. Um, here's what we're going to see. Daniel's a fascinating book. Um, if you grew up at all in church, you might have like those Sunday school images, I don't know, the flannel graph of like Daniel in the lion's den, and like, maybe it scarred you, I have no idea. Um, but all I know is that these stories, man, we're going to relook at them, hopefully seeing it from a, a completely new perspective. It's so much more than just um, stories. I'm very thankful that God set apart some young people to just be resilient, to say, you can't compromise us. We're going to relate we're going to take on new names. They're going to understand the culture they, they grew in. They're going to go to the University of Babylon, essentially, and yet they're not going to compromise their faith. It's unbelievable. Again, there's temptation for us to, I would say, kind of like condemn culture, for us to conform to culture, but scriptures offers another alternative, and that is to redeem culture. And so we're not here to condemn. We're not here to conform. We're here to redeem. And I think that these guys... And some of the stories that we're going to see, it's like, man, Lord, I need to learn from them. I need to learn from them. They start at 15. We're going to see Daniel around 14, 15 years old. And then we're going to see him at like 80 years old. And we're going to see like a lot in between. And my hope is this, God prepares our heart for this. Um, it was years ago. I remember I was 18 years old. I was, in, I was living in California at the time. Um, I was a part of this like discipleship group with this guy named Chuck Smith. And we're about to start a Bible study with our friends. And I remember going to Chuck and saying, hey, Chuck, you know, first time teaching through books of the Bible. What book should I teach through? And he's like, teach through Daniel. And I'm like, Daniel? I'm like, why not John? And, and he had his reasons. And 
you know, of course, Mateen and I know better, but he doesn't know what he's talking about. And I was naive and uh, very prideful. But the, I love his response. Like, looking back on that now, he's like, there's so much in Daniel. Why? Um, you know, it's funny. If you talk to different pastors and missionaries, they will say the two most favorite books amongst the persecuted church is Daniel and Revelation. And they'll give those examples. Like, man, the church in this area of the world loves Revelation. It loves Daniel. Because it gives hope in the suffering. It gives hope for the exile. You might feel like you're losing. You might feel like, man, the church, are we, are, we even, are we making an impact in any way? Here's the thing. The church has thrived under persecution. And the church has thrived when we haven't been the majority. And I think we have this weird moment in culture where your heart might feel a certain way. And I'd say rather than losing hope, we have a chance to say, you know what, we can be a minority of people living out the way of Jesus that can win the world. And I just hope that rather than us losing hope, we can press in. I want to recommend a little, it's a little book. It's just called Creative Minority by John Tyson. It's not about the book of Daniel, but the ideas from it are so similar. And this idea of creative minority, he defines it, and I want to define it because it just reminds me so much of Daniel and what we're going to be walking into for the next several months. Uh, so here's the idea. He defines a creative minority. He says, a creative minority is a Christian community, listen, in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships, knotted together in a living network of persons who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. How good is that? This is the vision for the church. This is how I think what God intended for us. Again, a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships, knotted together in a living network of persons who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. This is so much more than come and see and listen to a message and leave. Yes? This is why we talked about this last week. It's like we want to give ourselves over to this vision Paul had. So we are approaching Daniel hopefully with that mindset. Just stubbornly loyal, committed to each other, committed to the gospel of Jesus, not to retreat and run away from culture and saying culture bad, but to say, no, we have a chance to be a city on a hill, a light in a dark place, and we're going to press in and seek the renewal and redemption of the world. Yeah? Welcome to the book of Daniel, man. And it's, um, it's very interesting. So I'm so excited about this. You guys probably know that. Um, it's probably going to be more of an overview today, just to give you a heads up. There will be a lot of history from my... Do you have any Bible history nerds here? We're going to get into that? Yeah? No? Okay. This is going to be scary then for you. Um, but this will be fun. I want to give the big picture of this. So uh, why don't we do this? Let's read Daniel chapter 1, verse 1 through 7. Just read kind of the introduction, what's going on. And I want to make sure, I want to make sure that you guys understand where this book fits in like biblical history. So important. So Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. Let's read that. It says this, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. The Lord gave him into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded... Uh, Asphanaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family, that's the tribe of Judah, and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years 
It's interesting to me. For three years, at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs uh, gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, uh, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. That's it. Amen. Let's pray. Let's pray it up. (coughs) Father, we just want to say thank you. Um, Thank you for this book. Thank you for not leaving us in the dark. Father, thank you for giving us a hope when we feel like we've lost. Uh, Jesus, I just ask that you would be present, that you would bring clarity. Lord, that in the misunderstanding that Jesus, um, ultimately you'd be seen, that you'd be lifted up. And so, Lord, bless everyone in this place. Speak to them, Lord. I ask God that you would truly bring transformation in our lives today, that we'd approach our families different, we'd approach our neighbors different, we'd approach culture different. God, that the church would not conform and that we would not just condemn. Um, Lord, help us to learn from this. God, I ask that we would really take on a new mindset. Correct us in the ways that, Lord, my mind and my heart is maybe positioned towards others or towards the culture or towards what's going on. God, I ask that you'd give us love, that you'd give us the heart of these young men here, that, God, you'd pour out your favor in a very unique way on this community here, Jesus. So we look to you and we need you in your precious name. Amen. As we're going to see throughout the book of Daniel, it's kind of the story of the odd man out. All right, in a lot of different ways. And so get ready for some different stories where you feel like it's the odd man out. I don't know if you've ever been the odd man out. Like you're at a location or you're at your job and everyone knows like you're a little different. I don't know how you respond to being the odd man out. It is funny, like looking back at my life, if there's a few times where I'm like, I, how did I get here? You know, um, I've mentioned this a few times, but I love this season of life where I got to play with my travel basketball team. That was fun. My team, you know, there's guys from Inglewood High and Jordan High and Compton Centennial and Long Beach Poly, and I'm from Calvary Chapel. <laughs> we had, on my team, is awesome. It was Latrell, we had Navelle, um, we had Emil, and we had Josiah, all right? It was such a fun team. And honestly, it was such a unique experience for me, man. Like, it really was different. You know, I show up for trials, and I remember, like, half the guys have tattoos of their friends with, like, RIP, and I'm like, what happened? Like, oh, I got shot. And you're like, okay, where do you go? I'm like, I go to a Christian school in Orange County. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was different. But what I loved about it was it was such an important season of my life because we're traveling to Vegas for tournaments and I'm being exposed to things I wasn't exposed to. And I have a choice. Do I assimilate and just become just like them? Do I make them feel weird? Like, oh no. You know, how do you respond to that? How do you, how do you say no? Like my hope is to redeem this moment. Ooh, there we go. Um, My hope is to redeem this moment. My hope is to approach this differently. You know, I remember working at a restaurant in Southern California. It's called Ruby's Diner, right? If you've been to Ruby's, we have awful outfits. Um, I have my little bow tie, my little hat. I remember everyone there, you know, again, 16 years old, working at this restaurant. The conversations are, if you guys work at restaurants, man, restaurants are nasty. I don't know. Uh, people there, the conversations there, some of the things that are happening, the behind the scenes stuff. And then you're like, I'm this Christian kid. And I just remember like, you're trying to like, kind of like, do I just join in with them in the same conversation? Do I become like them? Do I make them feel weird that I'm holier than thou? And you kind of feel like this weird tension. You know, maybe you felt that in different ways at your work. We're like, I'm at my work. I don't want to ostracize people, act like I'm more self-righteous and better than them. I don't want to talk just like them or join them in every single thing they say and do. And you feel that tension of like, how do I kind of engage in this way? We're like, I don't want to make the, I don't want to condemn. I don't want to conform. What do I do? And I'm very thankful there's these, uh, these beautiful stories and scriptures that we, it's not just condemn or conform. There's other alternatives to that. And we're going to see some young men, like these young men specifically here, there's four, four men, 14 to 17 most likely, 
who are like somehow, by God's grace, man, wise beyond their years. And I, I don't know, to me, this is like an amazing thing. We're like praying as a parent, like, Lord, how do you get your kid at 14 years old to just have resilient faith? And how do I learn from this? And how do I look at Daniel at 14, 15, 16, to all the way 80, 85, just faithfulness for decades to God and to his word? What is this? And so I want to look at this through kind of that lens, but it's hard. Before we just jump right into that, um, there are some important kind of uh, a structure to the book of Daniel that I, I want you to see, and it's fascinating. So there's five kind of ways or five things we're going to look at today, some longer than others, so be patient with me, but we're going to see the setting, the plot, the theme, the characters, the climax, all right? This is kind of an overview of the book, the setting, the plot, the theme, the characters, the climax. Are you guys okay with that? You guys ready? Okay, let's look at verse one, or number, number one, that is the setting, the setting, where this takes place, what's going on. Verse 1, if you would, again, read with me. Daniel 1, verse 1, we see the setting. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. What we're going to see is they are taken from their home, and now they're in Babylon. Now, Babylon uh, is in modern-day Iraq, if you just want to imagine it. It's about 60 miles south of Baghdad. Uh, the land of Shinar, Babylon, same location. Uh, you guys might know, obviously, there's a lot of amazing kind of history and artifacts around this. You can even like Google the Babylonian Chronicles and read about some of these names in this book here. Uh, you guys know about, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Hanging Gardens were in Babylon. I mean, Babylon was powerful. It was a world-leading empire. I mean, it had the power. Babylon was very unique in its strategy compared to some other empires. Babylon seemed to not just go into different kingdoms or kings or areas and just simply destroy and lay waste. A lot of times they would kill off the young men. A lot of times they would kill off just, not just, you know, the men, women, and children, but specifically the men and, and the young men. Babylon had a mindset of, you know what, we're going to take the best and brightest, bring them in, and train them. If you guys know, like, history, this sometimes has been called, like, the brain drain. Have you heard of that phrase? I don't know if you heard that. It's like you go into a country, a territory. You know, it's kind of what America did, which wasn't great. Like, let's take the scientists. Let's take the world. Even though they've done some messed up things, we're going to take them, and we're going to, like, retrain them, and we're going to use their gifts and abilities and talents to further our kingdom. That's essentially what Babylon did. Babylon's like, all right, we're going to take the best, the brightest, the royal family. We're going to take it, and we're going to retrain them and reeducate them. But for us to really understand Babylon and its history and its roots, let me just say this, we kind of need an overall view of scripture. So I'm going to try my best to give you like a three, four minute overview of scripture. Can we do that? All right. You guys ready for that? Okay. Because for us to understand Babylon and Babel and its origin and its roots, I think it's important for us to understand like the overarching theme of just the Bible. You guys know this. I think most of you know this. The Bible begins in a garden. What I love about the Bible is it also ends in a garden. It ends in a garden city. And it's really this, this, we're traveling from one garden to another garden. But it begins in a garden. And in this garden, there's intimacy with God. It's safe. It's like family. God longs to have joy and relationship with them, to walk with them in the cool of the day, to have deep relationship. You guys know that man rebelled against God. We said, okay, God, thank you for this, but we're really curious about this tree of knowledge of good and evil, and this serpent here is telling us that maybe you're withholding good from us. You guys know we rebelled against God in the garden, and so we were, by God's grace, banished from the garden. God's like, we need to put some angel over the tree of life. We don't want man to eat of this tree and forever be locked into this fallen position. So God, in his grace, even banished us from this garden. And it's really this story from, this, from Eden to exile, from Eden to exile. This is essentially the story of the scriptures, like Eden to exile, and the goals get back to Eden. That's kind of in the heart of man. What do I mean by Eden again? 
that place where there's intimacy with God, that place where there's, you feel safe, you're at home. If you have that feeling in your life that things are just off, things are not the way they are supposed to be, it's because we are still, in a sense, in this exile position. Peter talks about how we are exiled. We are foreigners. We are strangers. This is not our home. If you feel like you're in exile, it's because we are. We're, in a sense, from Eden to exile, but we're going back to, in a sense, Eden. Back to community. Back to walking with God in this way. So we go from Eden to exile. You see that, obviously, right away, there's murder, there's chaos, there's sin, there's a flood. Even after that, a few families were kind of back to this garden-like state of it's just a few people. All right, rebuild, and immediately there's sin again. If you guys know, there's Nimrod. He wants to be this great leader. He gathers the people together in the land of Shinar, what we just read here, and they begin to build the Tower of Babel. Now, maybe you knew this, maybe you didn't know this. This is the same area and location. They're in the land of Shinar, Babylon's roots. It's actually the same word, but even though for some reason we say Babylon and Babel, it's the same thing. So Babylon is Babel. And the idea of Babel, the Tower of Babel and the heart of man, if you guys remember, this is essentially what the heart of man decreed or cried out at Babel. And the Bible picks up on this, and Babylon or Babel is constantly used as basically opposition to God. It's anti-God. It's we want our own way. Babylon is used in a lot of different ways. It's used in the book of Ezekiel. It's used in Revelation to kind of describe the evil heart of man. Uh, Genesis 11, verse 4. We'll put the verse up here just so you can see it. What did man say? They said, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. What you see a lot is let us, let us, it's us. We want to be exalted. We want to be like God. We want to make a name for our, it's about our name, our kingdom. And so the idea of Babylon to, you know, where Daniel is and Babel, you kind of see the roots continuing centuries later with Babylon. It's we still want to build a kingdom. We still, it's about us, our name. You know, in many ways, uh, Babylon, it's very incredibly diverse. A lot of different religions, a lot of different cultures, a lot of different backgrounds coming together, still trying to make a name for themselves. You might see the similarities, but like you look at South Florida, you look at different parts of the globe. There's parts where you go, man, it's very diverse. A lot of different religions, a lot of different cultures. There's still this ethos though of we are going to make a name for ourselves. It's about us. And so you see Babylon kind of continue in that. It's still this idea of look at how amazing our kingdom is. Learn our ways. Learn from us. We are going to disciple you into our kingdom. And you see that immediately this, essentially this battle between kingdoms. So one way to put it is from Eden, the story of the Bible, from Eden to exile, then is to Egypt. After Egypt, after wandering for, you know, uh, in the desert for 40 years, we see them entering the land that God has promised and then we see them want to build their own empire. The story of Israel is very interesting. God's like, I want to be your God. I want this to be like a, almost like a monotheistic kind of culture. Like, it's, I'm, I'm going to be your king. And they're like, you know what? We want our own king. And yet, you guys know this. I don't need to get into this too much. But last year, man, or man, for two years, we went through 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings. We kind of went through the story, so I don't want to give too much. But it's just important for us to see this. They're like, we want our own empire. And it's like, okay, they got Saul, then David, then Solomon. Then it split. You guys remember it split? We did this so much last year, so hopefully you're with me if you were with us last year. The northern kingdom was? No. <laughs> I failed. No, it's okay. The northern kingdom was Israel. The southern kingdom was Judah. In the north, there's 10 tribes. In the south, there's essentially two tribes. And if you guys remember, um, you have Rehoboam and Jeroboam, the son of Solomon, who, who takes, you know, uh, Judah. 
you have the North. You have, these, you have it sad. God's heart for the people you unified is already split up. And the story is over and over again of like God's like, I want there to be intimacy. I want there to be family. I have a land for you. I have a place for you. I have all these things in mind for you, but it's we will do it our way. And so they have two different empires. Then you have the Northern Empire fall by the Assyrians. If you remember, they were taken captive by the Assyrians. Essentially, the Northern Empire fell. We'll put the dates up around 722 BC. The North has fallen. Uh, Judah, though, by God's grace, it had a couple good kings here and there, but still some really wicked kings. Judah lasted a little bit longer. It didn't fall to the Assyrians, but it fell here to the Babylonians. And so you see the North fall to the Assyrians, the South, Judah, fall to the Babylonians. Daniel, just so you know, is a part of that first wave being brought into Babylon. There's a few different kind of waves of people being brought into Babylon. There were still kings uh, in Judah while Babylon was ruling and reigning. There's still kings for a period of time, but they're being slowly brought in. Just to kind of remind you, because you're going to see these names throughout uh, Daniel, and it's important to see the big picture of Scripture. When I was younger, I'm always like, I struggle with this. I'm like, where does Daniel fit with Scripture? Um, when Second Kings ends, Second Chronicles ends, you see it being brought into Babylon, but you see a few different kings. I just want to make sure you're aware of this. The last three kings of Judah that we see interacting with Babylon in different ways, uh, you have Jehoiakim. He also goes by Eliakim. So if you see that, don't get confused. You have Jehoiakim, or Jehoiachin, however you want to say it, and he goes by Jeconiah. All right? Then you have Zedekiah, and he also goes by Mataniah. Are you guys confused? All right, Don't be. But look at these names, and you're going to see that those names mentioned, three people, three kings, and you're going to see these kings in uh, Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah. Remember, Jeremiah remained in Jerusalem. He's like, guys, repent. Babylon is actually God's judgment, and we shouldn't fight this. We, sh we need to actually go into Babylon. They're like, Jeremiah, you're a false prophet. God wants us to prosper. He's like, not this time. We're going to be there for 70 years, guys. And Jeremiah was so specific. Jeremiah is beaten up, abused. No one listens to him. I, I love Jeremiah. Poor Jeremiah, man. But Jeremiah, you see, is alive during the time of Daniel. He would be around. You have these different kings who are alive. Daniel doesn't really focus too much on what's going back home. But you're going to see kind of different waves hitting throughout the book of Daniel in uh, different waves kind of arriving or showing up as we kind of read this book. Did I lose you guys? Are you guys okay so far? Are you all right? I think it's cool when you see the big picture, like Ezekiel, if you remember even his book being written, like on the way from Jerusalem to Babylon, he's having these vis visions. So know that as Daniel's around, Ezekiel's around. Um, you have the different kings that are around. Jeremiah's around. And you have like these things going on that God is orchestrating this. There's suffering. There's chaos. They're being ripped from their land, but it's crazy how much God spoke to his people during the chaos. It's crazy how many minor and major prophets are happening around this time. Even though all hope is lost, God is still speaking. That's something that has to be clearly seen. Even though they're being ripped from their land. I mean, I can't imagine this. It's the, you know, when you look at the traveling from Jerusalem to Babylon and the, the path they had to take, some say 750 miles, some say like 1,900 miles, depending on the path they took. But the idea is like, imagine us being taken captive a couple thousand miles away. You're ripped away. You're traveling up by foot. You lost everything. You're going to be essentially slaves in a foreign land. You feel like all hope is lost. And yet God is speaking to Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. God is pouring out his vision, his wisdom, what's happening. God is saying, don't worry, it's 70 years. You'll be back. You'll be back in 70 years. But there's just so much pain and frustration and probably anger in the heart, bitterness towards God in the heart. Somehow these four guys were not bitter towards God. Somehow these four guys remained faithful in this exile. It's incredible to me. Not, is it not? I'm sorry. I don't know. This is amazing to me. Now, I want to give you a couple more, like, more big picture things, and we'll move on from this. Um, but I love this. This is, the, this is the main idea. The main idea of Eden to exile and the goal to get back to Eden, the goal to get back to the garden, 
The goal to get back to this garden-like state where you're walking with God and knowing God. This is in the heart of all of man. I love J.R.R. Tolkien. You guys know him from Lord of the Rings, but he wrote a lot of great stuff. And here's one of the things he said. He says, we all long for Eden and we are constantly glimpsing it. Our whole nature at its best and least corrupted is uh, gentlest and most human is still soaked with the sense of exile. Our soul, we're still soaked with a sense of exile, but we're longing for Eden. And in this story of Daniel and the big story of Old Testament scripture, you got to see ripped from the garden. They're in the hanging gardens, but there's this longing to get back to this garden, this intimacy with God, to get it back home, to get back to Jerusalem, to get back to their land that God has called them and given to them. And you're going to see that. Um, just so you go, I'm not going to spend time on this. You can take a picture of this. I'm going to reference this later in the book, but there is like a suggested timeline overall. Um, this takes place over about 70 years and a little bit more so, uh, but you can see this. It starts in 605 BC. That's when Daniel arrives in Babylon. And then you essentially see around 537, 536, you're going to see him with King uh, Cyrus. My point of this is just to show you a basic timeline. Take a picture or not. It's okay. We'll move on from this. I'm not going to spend too much time on this. But here's something I want you to see. As we study this book, if you're confused, it's okay. Welcome to the club. All right, so here's why. The, 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 uh, the chronological order of Daniel is very interesting. It's almost like a Christopher Nolan movie. You're like, I don't know where you started and end. What the heck just happened? Like, you're, it's kind of confusing. All right, and sometimes literature is like biblical literature, Hebrew literature is kind of written this style. So here's the idea, just so you know. The chronological order will th- show up here. It goes chapters one through four then chapter seven would be next, then chapter eight, then chapter five, then chapter nine, then chapter six, then chapter 10 through 12. So if you ever read it, you're like, wait, I thought we were on King Nebuchadnezzar. Why are they talking about King Darius now? And like, now we're back to Nebuchadnezzar. Where'd he come from? Okay. Don't get confused. It's not in order. Okay. So we are going to go through the book in order, but I want you to know if we're jumping from a king to back to a king, you're like, I thought that king's dead now. What the heck? How's he back in? It's just think Christopher Nolan is trying to confuse you. I don't know. It's just, it's just one of those kind of styles of literature, and it's written this way. So I just kind of want you to follow and, and feel the kind of theme as it's moving and as it's working in this way. All right, we're going to move on from that. You guys okay now? Is that all right? Got a little bit of the setting? You're like, I don't know. It's okay. We got this. Number two is the plot. The plot. And that's going to be verse two. Like, here's the details and what's going on. Look at verse two again. Verse two says, and the Lord gave... Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. That's so key. With some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Let me just, when I say the plot, um, the details, imagine, again, like I described, you're being ripped from your home, brought to a new home. You've lost everything. Imagine everything you've worked for, everything you planted, everything you've built, the bitterness, the frustration, the anger. You can imagine them wanting to at different times overthrow Babylon. That's why Jeremiah is like begging, like, don't fight this. This is God. Go into the land. And you're thinking like, what is the Lord doing? The Lord gave them into his hands. Obviously, we have to see just the sovereignty of God is just a major theme throughout the book of Daniel. That even in the wildest circumstances, God is still in control. And this is so frustrating. I know. This is frustrating to go, God, like, how are you? Why did you do that? You have to understand um, in that world, a few thousand years ago, you think about kind of the mindset. The mindset was, may the one true God defeat the other false gods. And by the Jews losing, it's almost like affirmation to all the false gods and their people going, awesome, our God's the one true God. Obviously, your God cannot be the one true God. You lose every time, Jews. Like, what do you, but little do they know, 
that God told him this. If you seek me, if you follow me, if you obey my commands, you'll prosper. If you forsake me, you'll be brought into the hand of your enemy. God, time and time again, like warned them and told them this would happen. So despite it feeling chaotic, despite it feeling like they're losing, God is like, I'm still sovereign over this. I told you this would happen, and so this is happening. If you're wondering why did this happen, why did we fall into their hands, like why the big picture of the plot, um, we see this in Jeremiah 22, and I want to make sure you see this. Why were they taken to Babylon? God says, let me tell you why. So read this, Jeremiah 22, verse 8. It says, many nations will pass by the city, the city of Jerusalem, and every man will say to his neighbor, why has the Lord dealt this way with this great city? Why is Jerusalem destroyed and leveled? And they will answer, because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God and worship other gods and serve them. God's so like, I want to be really clear. This is why you've fallen. This is why I'm letting you be taken captive. You've served other gods. I told you this would happen, and now it's happened. So that we see like the context. Also, the 70 years, I want to get to that, but they never let the land rest. If you remember, we talked about this when we closed out our Second Kings kind of series, but God's like, you owe me for like the 490 years that you worked straight and never had the seventh year of rest for the land, so you owe me 70 years. And so God is basically, you owe me 70 years, you're going to be held captive for 70 years. You see this in 2 Chronicles 36, verse 20. It says this, he took, he took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill the 70 years. So I want you to see God's like, you're going to be here for 70 years. You owe me in a sense. You, you didn't do what I asked. Jeremiah talked about this. Leviticus talked about this actually even as well. God's like, this is why you're going. Imagine God, imagine it says the Lord gave it over. You're just going, okay, God, this is part of your sovereign plan. My suffering, my exile, my suffering in, in any capacity is part of your sovereign plan. And ultimately, Lord, and God is basically, and we're going to see in a minute, God is like, I want you to make the most of this suffering. I want you not just to sit around bitter for 70 years. I want you to make the most of this. A couple questions come up that we need to explore, and here's just the first one. How can God's kingdom advance in a place where people don't recognize his rule? So they're in Babylon, and God's like, you still need to live faithfully to me. And how can we make an impact where people don't recognize God's rule? Obviously, this leads to our question for us. It's how can we be faithful to God in a place like South Florida where people don't recognize God's rule? So how can we say, you know what, Lord, we, we, here's where we are. It's in an area where there's a lot of different beliefs, a, lo a lot of like the occult, gross things, witchcraft, sorcery, like things that were in Babylon. We see like a lot of that coming up in different, in different ways. The point being, Lord, how do we remain faithful when we live in a place like this? And so I feel like Daniel kind of introduces us a lot of ideas like here's how you can live faithful. So it's not going to be answered today, but we're going to see just this gradual amazing faithfulness to God despite being in a really dark area. Christians, my point is this. Don't just retreat. Don't just disengage from non-believers or co-workers. Find a way to say, you know what? I'm not here just to simply condemn and be like, I can't believe you live that way. And I'm not here to conform and look and do and speak and act just like you. But I am here to be a city on a hill. I'm here to be a light in a dark place. I'm here to offer you an alternative way of living that will bring you a future to hope. I'm here to live an alternative way that will hopefully be winsome to the gospel. And so it leads us to number three, which is the theme. If I could just summarize the theme of Daniel, as simply as simple as I can, I'll say the theme of Daniel is simply the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. If you're like, what's the theme of Daniel? 
It's that look at all these kingdoms. Daniel's going to have some amazing visions and insight. And he's like, basically, this kingdom came and went. This kingdom came and went. This kingdom came and went. But there will be a kingdom that will be unshakable and will always remain. That despite the other kingdoms, there is a kingdom above all kingdoms that will never fade away. And so it's essentially the kingdom of God is advancing despite the kingdoms of this world. All right? The next thing is this. If you're like, what does the kingdom of God mean? I hear that. The kingdom of God. I love this simple definition. It's this. God's reign through God's people over God's place. God's reign through God's people over God's place. Essentially what the church is supposed to be is almost like a little outpost of heaven. We've talked about this, but it's almost like we're a little outpost of heaven. We're to be like those who say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You're saying, how can we be a community that can be a little bit a taste of heaven? Where people sense love and grace. They sense the Holy Spirit. They sense God's goodness. That God's will is done versus our will. That we will not be Babylon. We'll not be Babel. We'll not make a name for ourselves. We're not going to try to reach that. We're, we're not going to try to reach the heavens ourselves because the heaven came to us. But how do we be a little outposts of heaven? How do we say this is where God's rule and reign is happening? The whole idea of, of, of it is just saying, like, you, even though you're the minority, Daniel, Mishael, Azariah, Hananiah, even though you're the minority, you can still be a little taste of God and his kingdom in this pagan kingdom. You can still be an alternative way of living, even though you're the minority. And you have an opportunity to stand out. And they will stand out, obviously, as you'll see. But it's the kingdom of God. And I, I, just, I think this is so important for us. So let me kind of point this out. Um, you're going to see Nebuchadnezzar the king in chapters 1 through 4. Remember the confusing thing? Here we go back to this Christian Roland thing. You're going to see Belshazzar, his son, be the king in chapter 5, 7, and 8. <laughs> it's a little all over the place. You're going to see Darius the Mede in 6, 9, 11, and 12. And you're going to see Cyrus the Great in 6 and 10. You guys with me on that? All right, it's okay if you forget. Here's why I'm bringing this up. He's like, despite Darius being the king or Cyrus eventually taking over or Belshazzar, despite all of these things, these kings come and go, but there is a king who will always remain. And that's the idea. You'll see king after king after king, empire after empire after empire, but there's a kingdom that will not be moved. These kingdoms will crumble. Every empire has come and gone. Our empire will be a footnote in a history book, most likely. Where we are today, kingdoms come and go, empires come and go, but the kingdom of God will always remain. And so we're trying to, be, we're trying to build that kingdom. We're trying to be about a better kingdom. We're trying to say, I want to invest into the kingdom that actually matters. Not that we shouldn't make the most of the here and now and use what God has given us. Absolutely. We're going to see that in Daniel 10 when Daniel prays and like, wait, God still works through prayer and, and still affects the, the actions of man through prayer. Absolutely. And we still need to be engaged in this world like Daniel was. But ultimately, there's a kingdom that lasts forever. Ultimately, there's a kingdom that's more important. Are you guys with me on that? So you see the kingdom just being this big theme. Now, here's why this is so important. Daniel is basically an expression of Jeremiah's vision for the people. So stay with me. These books are tied together. Don't view the Bible as just separate, isolated books. The book of Daniel, I want to be really clear, the book of Daniel is an expression of Jeremiah's vision for the people and how to live. You're like, what do you mean? If you'd like, please turn to Jeremiah 29. I'm going to read it. We'll put it up here. But if you want to turn to Jeremiah 29, maybe you're with us at the end of our Second Kings um, passage months ago, but it's very similar in that way. So, remember, Daniel is an expression of Jeremiah's vision, essentially, on how to live in exile. So here's what Jeremiah says, Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah's like, guys, you're going to be taken as slaves. 
You're going to be exiles in a foreign land. Here's how you live, though, when you're in exile. This is how you're to carry yourself. This is how you're to behave. This is what you're to do. So Jeremiah could not be more specific. It's a passage that's probably abused in this context, but when you understand the context, I think it has way more weight to it. So Jeremiah 29, verse 4, we'll put the verses up here. Here's what Jeremiah, or God, says to the people through Jeremiah. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Listen to this. To all the exiles whom I have sent in exile from Jerusalem, Babylon. Is that Daniel? Yeah. Is that Mishael? You know? Yes. Azariah? Yes. Okay. All these guys. He says, what? Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. I love that. Multiply there. And do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city. Seek the welfare of Babylon, where I've sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find welfare. In its peace, you'll find peace. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who, who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. This is unbelievable. Remember what Jeremiah is going through? They're like, Jeremiah is a false prophet. Listen, the best is yet to come. And Jeremiah's like, the best is not yet to come. Okay, Jeremiah said, don't listen to that. There is gonna be judgment. It's gonna be difficult, but God is saying, but multiply, make the most of it. Seek the shalom of the city. Seek the peace of the city. Make it prosper. Benefit it. Be people that benefit where you live. Do we benefit the area in which we live? Do people, if Christians were removed from South Florida, would they be like, oh my gosh, there's like this black hole. Like what happened? Homeless people aren't being fed. Families aren't being taken care of. There's not like, there's no love. Everyone's always like, what would happen if we were removed? Would people notice? He's like, you need to multiply and seek the shalom of the city. Benefit it. Grow it. Don't get discouraged. Don't say, I'm not going to have kids because we're all just going to suffer and die here. Don't do that. He's like, multiply, increase. You need to make the most of this. Yes, you're truly a slave in a foreign land. Like, how can you find any joy in that? He's like, plant gardens. Enjoy, eat, eat. Make the most of it. It's, I love this heart, this call for God to his people. He's not saying, don't despise the city. It's always interesting, when I, and I get it. I do get it. When you talk to Christians who like hate, they hate where they live. I just hate it here. Like you hate it here? I hate it. Like, why do you hate it? Just hate it. People are awful. All right. I get it. But like, can you love people? Nah, I hate them. We're like, no. Like, we're so weird. And, and if you hear the heart of God, God is like, even if you feel like you're losing and you're in exile, like love where you live. Make the most of it. Plant gardens. Increase. Multiply. What are you doing? You see the heart of God. It's so clear. And I just love this because it's such a vision for us as a church to live when you feel like you're in exile, when you feel like you're losing, when you feel like whatever. God's like, don't just, don't just run away, retreat. Like, you're going you're gonna to bless where you live. This is so clear. And I love this. You know how he ends, we just read in verse 10, but God's like, after 70 years, I'm going to visit you. I'll bring you back to your land. I told you I'd do this. And Jeremiah is a false prophet, but I love what one author says this, um, whatever, he says this, God tells us now what he will do later so we will not be overcome with the presence. So in verse 10, when he's like, hey, you know what, guys, um, in 70 years, you're going to be back in your land. He's like, I love this. The author's like, yeah, God tells us now what we'll do later so we won't be overcome in the present. That's so good. 
So like, I need Daniel. I need revelation. I need those books for God's like, wait, how does the book end? Oh, God's ruling and reigning and Satan is crushed and there's a new heaven and new earth and uh, there's a garden city I live in and I eat new food every day. This is great. Like, yeah, okay. The point is like, I need to know the ending so I don't, I'm not overcoming the present. And this is what God does for them. God's like, let me tell you the ending. 70 years. Even though most of them forget. And we're gonna see Daniel later be like, hey, didn't Jeremiah say 70 years? Like, I, I love it. But you're gonna see this kind of happening in the book of Daniel. So basically Daniel, Mishael, Azariah, Hananiah, they're going to be living out this vision in where, where their city, in Babylon. They're going to be carrying this out. You guys follow me on that? And when God says in 70 years, hey, I'm going to come back and visit you, that's verse 10. Now here's what he says in verse 11, the verse we all know. Verse 11, he says, uh, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Doesn't that have so much more weight to it? It has so much more weight when you go, wait a second. God says this to people who are anti-him, serving other gods. They're in exile because of their idolatry. They're, they're slaves because of their sins, like because of what they've done. And God's like, you know what? I know the plans I have for you. I, I know how I feel towards you. I, I want to give you a future and a hope. Like God says that, if God says that to them, how much more for the new covenant church under the grace and blood of Jesus, how much more does that mean for us? When people say, Jeremiah 29, does it apply to us? I'm like, you're right. It applies to us tenfold. Because if God can say that to them in rebellion, in idolatry, in sin, how much can he say that to us at Bride of Christ? I just, I love this because people are like, you don't know the context. I'm like, you're right. The context makes it better. <laughs> the context makes it have way more weight to it. And God's like, I know the plans I have for you. You see, the theme is kingdoms will come and go while we're here in this kingdom. Stand out. Multiply. Don't retreat. Kingdoms come and go. Live for the bigger kingdom, absolutely, but don't despise where you are. Don't despise Babylon. Are you following me with this, church? This is so profound. And so they're there. They're in Babylon. They're doing this. I want to end with this, this verse. It's Hebrews 13, 14, but here's what it says. He says, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Guys, isn't that, isn't that the point? Babylon will come and go. Jerusalem will come and go. The people, somehow about 2,000 years later, 1948, somehow Israel became a nation again. It's unbelievable. But the kingdoms come and go, but the, the, the kingdom of God will never end. And we're seeking a city that is to come. And so you see the theme. Number four, we see the characters. And we're just going to, I want you to see verse three to seven. There's some fascinating kind of details. We're almost done. But verse four to seven, you guys okay? You guys with me? The characters, because this is kind of cool. You're going to see some cool things here. Verse, four to se- uh, verse three to seven, we're going to see the characters. Look at this. Verse three, read with me. He says, then... The, uh, the king commanded Asphanaz, his chief eunuch. Now, this reminds me of a parable where Jesus sends out a servant to bring to the wedding. Just, just listen to this. He sends out Asphanaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful to all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, and learning, and competent to stand in the king's place and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that the king drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. At the end of three years, stand before the king, verse 6. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And of the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. All right, what's going on here? So again, we talked about the brain drain. We talked about the idea of bringing the best in. If you, do, if you notice, it's a three-year discipleship program. All right, so for three years... Three years, it says, there to be educated and trained to learn the language, to learn the history, to learn 
even the, the, the spiritual beliefs, the different gods, because you can tell by how they're renamed, there's like this isolation, let us pull you away from your community, from the, a more sense of, of Jewish believers. We're going to isolate you. We're going to try to assimilate you. I love the breakdown of this. And I, I want you to see how the enemy works in many ways, but here's what we see. Isolation, indoctrination, assimilation, confusion when it comes to the names. And you see that. This is fascinating. It's how do we isolate them, just a few of them, away from their people. Imagine 14, 15, 16 ripped from your parents, learning the ways of Babylon for three years. The indoctrination, essentially, they're trying to, have, they're trying to do. The assimilation, hey, eat what we eat, do what we do, assimilate in that way. Hey, let us rename you. We're trying to change your identity. This is your identity, but we're going to change that. We're going to give you a whole new identity with this name change. And you can see in many ways, like the enemy does still try to do that. How can I isolate people? How can I fill them with the wisdom of the world? How can I indoctrinate them? You kind of see those similarities, but essentially it's like their version of discipleship. It's their version of three years, pull you away, remove you away. And I love it. They take the best and brightest. Now, this is just a side note for me, like in my own personal study time, when I'm like reading this, I'm like, Lord, first of all, I love this. This is like an anti-Jesus discipleship. (laughs) Jesus was with the disciples for how long? Three years. And I love this because did Jesus choose the nobles, the royalty? He chose the fishermen and tax collectors. And he didn't, they didn't live in a royal pl- palace. What did Jesus say? He's like, oh, I have nowhere to lay my head. So they were homeless. So I love that Jesus' discipleship is like, I'm not going to choose the best and brightest. I'm going to choose the most broken people I can find. And we're not going to live in a royal palace. We're just going to walk around, and if we find somewhere to sleep, great. And I, I, just, I just love like what's happening. It's almost like, here's this discipleship program. We see Jesus' discipleship program. They are given new names. Jesus, in many ways, gave them new names. And one day in heaven, we have new names. But you see, it's almost like this like anti-discipleship kind of similar parallels there. But the reason why I bring all this up is there's such a focus, and we have to see this, and you'll see this out the book. There's a focus of let me change your identity. You are no longer Daniel, but you're Belteshazzar. You're no longer Michelle, you're Meshach. And here's what I want you to see. I'm going to put the names up here just so you can kind of see what they were doing and see how clear it was. Um, you guys know that there was names then, I think, had a little bit more weight and meaning to them. Like, they named them in a way, as almost like an act of worship to remember God in some capacity. Maybe your name has meaning behind it, and you can kind of like, oh, I get that. But there was more weight to this. So here's the idea. Daniel, will put it up here. Daniel means God is my judge. What do they name him? What do they name him? They name him Belteshazzar. May Bel protect your life of the king. And you're going to see this uh, the idea of, like, Daniel, there's, like, God, L, Daniel, E-L-L. You see that God, you're going to see E-L, God is my judge for Daniel. But now it's like we're going to replace God and, and put it with Bel, one of the Babylonian gods. So it becomes Belteshazzar. Hananiah means God or Yahweh is gracious. Love that. Hannah also means that in the girl form. But Hananiah, God is gracious. And they're going, oh, we're going to name you Shadrach, the command of Aku. Aku is a Babylonian moon god. Just, you're commanded by him. You're led by him. Then, Mishael. Who is, is, or what is God? Like, what is God like? Who is God like? There's no one like God. It's basically a question, but it's a statement. There's no one like God. Mishael. Then Meshach. Who is like a coup? This kind of changed that. <laughs> There's no one like a coup, man. We love this a coup guy. Um, and they just changed his name that way. Azariah. Yahweh has helped. Abednego. It means a servant of Nego, or some say Nebo. It's just a Babylonian de- deity. Abednego. Here's the idea. Their name was rooted in God. Their identity was rooted in God. I'm Daniel, man. God is my judge. I'm, I'm Hananiah. God is gracious. And their name was just rooted in the character and the nature of God, who God is. And they're like, well, we're going to root your identity now, not in your God, but in our gods. And they're trying to root their identity in something outside of God. Now, here's what I love. When Daniel writes, you'll see this more in chapter 7 and 8, I think, later in the book, but Daniel's going to take on more of an autobiographical approach later. And when Daniel starts writing about himself, what does he say? I, Belteshazzar? 
No, he says, I, Daniel. And here's the reason. You'll see Daniel in his 80s going, I, Daniel. He never forgot who he was. He never forgot his identity. He, he, listen, he went by Belteshazzar. He acknowledged that. You're, gonna see them, you're actually going to see the three names of um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego actually mentioned in just outside of biblical history. Like they, they're, they're, sure, they took that on, but they didn't take it on as their identity. There's really something to learn from this. It's like, sure, call me whatever you want, but I know who I am. There's something so beautiful about this idea of the world can acknowledge me anyway. They can say anything about me, but I know who I am. I know whose I am. I know who I belong to. I know where my identity is rooted. So Daniel, I think it's like eight plus times ago, I, Daniel, I, Daniel, I, Daniel, not I, Belteshazzar. He knows, he knows who he is and whose he is. And I want us to know, like, when there's this battle for your identity, the enemy always has this battle for your identity. I'm primarily this. God reminds us, no, your identity is in me. And I give you a new name. And I love how one day the Bible promises in heaven we'll all have a new name. We don't know that name yet. But I love the idea of God's like, I give you your name. I give you, you don't, you don't define who you are. I define who you are. Let God be your identity. Don't let culture dictate to you what your identity is. They're trying to do that. They're trying to just, how do we suck them away from everything biblical, spiritual, holy, everything Jewish to them? How do we just pull them away and just give them a new name? And it's like, sure, fine, you can do that, but that's still not going to change me. You can do whatever you want. I'll learn your literature. I'll learn about your spiritual beliefs. Here's the idea. They actually had to learn a lot about the occult. There's no doubt they did. A lot, you're going to see those dreams and interpretations of dreams. They had to learn a lot about that, being in that, cli- in, in that culture. But it doesn't mean they embraced it. It doesn't mean they took it on. They still care about their Jewish faith and belief system. There is a way to be the minority and still remain faithful to Jesus and to still remain faithful to his word. And there's a way to not just how do I retreat or how do I rebuke, but how do I redeem? We're not just here to simply retreat and rebuke. We're here to redeem. And so we see that happening in, in Daniel. We see their names being changed, but they're not being changed in who they are. And I also need to point this out. This is so key, by the way. Um, understand this. When you read Daniel, it's very easy for us to be like, yo, look at Daniel, man, interpreting dreams, not eating this food, you know, the lion's den thing. And it's easy for us to, like, look at this and be like, yo, I could do that stuff. All right, know that, like, he, the lion's den happens when he's, like, in his 80s, okay? Like, this is not, like, on Monday, you know, I don't know, you have lion's den. On Tuesday, you have the handwriting on the wall. Like, it's, it's not like that. So there's a lot of time being passed because sometimes, like, I want that type of resilient faith. But first, it started just with their diet, <laughs> you know? Like, it's going to start so simple. And I guess my point is, like, before you think, like, I want to do these great things for God, just maybe start small. Like, you can just serve in kids. That's okay. Like, sometimes you're like, I'll face the lions, and you probably won't on day one. You probably will maybe on day, you know, year 60, like Daniel, but not on, on day one. And I just think there's a progress. And here's the thing, like, in the mundane, be faithful. In the small things, be faithful. You want, you think you can handle lion's den? Let's be honest. I don't know if I can right now. I need like that, like God, thank you that you're so good to sanctify me and like prepare me slowly. And I would just say like, just, I don't know, give yourself grace in this and start off small and just be faith, just be faithful in the mundane. Daniel, what we're going to see in Daniel 6 is when there's a decree to worship no other God, but, the, but their God. And that's to worship anyone but the king. You're going to see Daniel in 6.10 turn and pray three times, and I love it. Just as, as he did previously in Daniel 6.10, as he just always did. 
So here's the thing with Daniel. Daniel just did the daily things. Daniel prayed daily three times towards Jerusalem as a way to remember God is where you've called us. But my point of it is saying, um, do those faithful things daily, and then maybe one day you can handle the lion's den. But it's not right away. And so you're going to see, as we see Daniel, as we look at the big picture, it's just so cool. Like, he knows where his identity is rooted. We know he's seeking the Lord, not just daily, but like multiple times throughout the day. And you see him being disciplined. And here's the last point. The climax of Daniel, meaning what is the point? It, it, is, is the Bible a book about us? Not pro- No, no, let me just say no. It's about God, <laughs> about his vision and, his, and who he is and his story. We have a role in that. But don't just be like, I'm Daniel, I'm Shadrach, I'm Meshach, I'm a Ben. I don't know. You can sometimes, we can sometimes read ourselves into the story, and yes, there's a way to learn from that. But can I tell you what's even better than that? This is a book that's not about us, and it's not even about Daniel. It's a book about the Son of Man, meaning that the apex of Daniel is this vision of the Son of Man. It's like the highlight. They're like, oh my gosh, in Daniel 7, he has this vision of the Son of Man, which we'll look at. And here's the, my point. Jesus has a lot of titles, the Son of David. You know, he's uh, the Lamb of God. Jesus has a lot of titles. The number one title Jesus calls himself is Son of Man. Jesus refers to this book, Daniel, and he actually even talks about the abomination and desolation that Daniel wrote about, meaning Jesus affirms Daniel was real. Jesus affirms Daniel was alive. This is not fiction. Daniel lived. Daniel wrote this. Jesus affirms that, and Jesus takes on the title that Daniel gives, which is Son of Man. And here's like the climax of the book, and I just want you to read this. It's Daniel chapter 7, verse 14. Here's what it says about the Son of Man. The Son of Man, verse 14. To him was given what? Dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. This is the highlight, the focus, the climax of the book of Daniel. The idea is, hey, Babylon, where all these people try to, you know, be as one, reach heaven, one language, and then they're diverse, and and then all these languages spread throughout the earth. God's like, you know what? Here in Babylon, I'm going to remind you. In Babylon, this place you're dispersed with all these many languages, I'm going to gather all tribes, nations, and tongues, and people, and they're going to serve the one true God, the one king. His kingdom shall always remain. His kingdom will not fade away. The climax of Daniel, the focus, the emphasis is on the son of man who has a kingdom that is unshakable. Here's why this is so key for us. As we read this book, amazing stories, some kind of crazy apocalyptic literature, we're going to do our best to understand, but do not lose sight of the fact that the focus is on King Jesus, ruling and reigning, have dominion, power, and glory, and his kingdom will never end. And that we cannot lose sight of that, because there's going to be some weird stuff, like what's that little horn mean? All right, there's going to be some weird stories we're going to read about, but you cannot lose sight of this is a vision of Jesus ruling and reigning, and kingdoms come and go, but the, the kingdom of God will always remain. Amen? And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to end with prayer, with worship, because I just want to say, Lord, help us be resilient people in exile. When we feel like we're losing, help us be a light in a city on a hill. God, we feel like all hope is lost. Remind us of our future, that you have a future and a hope for us, that you will come again, that you will rule and reign, that we go from this gar- the Garden of Eden to the Garden, the heavenly city. Like, remind us, Lord, of our future. And I just hope that we can not lose sight of what we're doing and why we're doing this. Yes? Well, just bow your head, close your eyes, take a second. You can thank Jesus, you can praise Jesus, say thank you, Jesus, that you are the King of Kings. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the Lord of Lords. That no matter who's in political power, you are still God, you are still King. That no matter who's in office, God, you are over that. And we're about a bigger kingdom. Lord, that your kingdom will never fade away. 
And I just ask that the Lord would just remind us of who's ultimately in control, that even in their suffering, even in their exile, God was still on the throne. And so just take a second, thank God, praise God. Thank God for Daniel 7:14, all glory and power and honor. And so Father, we just wanna say thank you. Thank you that you've given us your son. You've given us a vision of your son ruling and reigning. That as Daniel described this, Lord, just all tribes and nations and people gathered, recognizing and acknowledging that the son of man is ruling and reigning. Lord, we just thank you. We ask that you would just speak and move God, that when our hearts are fearful or overwhelmed with anxiety or thoughts about the future, that you would remind us of the, our true future. <laughs> Lord, that you'd remind us that we have a city that will last forever, but it's not here. Help us not um, despise where we live. Help us love where we live. Help us seek the, the peace of the city. I ask that you do something unique in your people here, Lord. That we'd have our eyes on heaven and our feet on earth. That, Lord, we would just be really, Lord, people um, seeking the benefit of our neighbors, our coworkers, that people would come to know you. Jesus, we just want to thank you and praise you in your precious name.